nobody here to do yesterday. It was blissful silence. <laughs> I just kidding. Do you want to know how to prosper in happiness even if the worst suffering has come upon you? The Bible tells you how. Do you want things like peace, happiness, hope, faith, and love? God has given them in abundance. Do you want the greatest visible rewards and always be young enough to enjoy them? God promises great rewards in the next life, in heaven, in a new body. <clears throat> the catch, and you know, there's always a catch, right? Uh, there actually isn't. There's no catch here. It's just a matter of the source. The source is where it's at. And just like if we need water, we have to go to the source. We have to go to the source of where these things are. And only in God, only in the Scripture, can we find these things because they are from the Creator. The source is the Creator. And today, we're going to see, and I'll show you, how we go to Him and how we gain these things. Uh, so let's uh, pray. Let's bow our heads and pray. Let's thank God for our opportunity to be together and to hear His Word and to be guided and directed in the truth. So with that, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity and privilege to be with you, be before you, have our hearts filled with you and with your love and grace and your word. Your word, Father, reveals to us everything that you are and what you uh, have for us, have blessed us with and where the source of these things are. There's so many lies in the world. There's so much uh, around us that uh, tells us that the direction to go to get things that are good uh, are in a certain way. And so many of over centuries and thousands of years have tried these very ways, and no one has found, that, found things that way, nothing good. So, Father, we <coughs> uh, come to you, the source, uh, the source of living water, and we drink from your word that our thirst may be quenched for your truth. And we ask, Father, that you would, in fact, give each of us what we need, and we ask in Christ's name, amen. Uh, I want to start with, we're, we're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 13. Uh, we're going to look at, our, our, uh, everything today is going to be about this passage in Jeremiah, uh, which is wonderfully linked to our study of the filling of God the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're going to be looking at clinging to God, and this is the message that God gives to the prophet Jeremiah to teach the southern kingdom of Judah uh, that they should have clung to God, but they did not. And we're going to see what, what does clinging mean. Um, it's actually a, a, a word that refers to a love relationship uh, the word is used of Adam and the woman uh, right at the beginning when they, when uh, you know, God put Adam to sleep, took out a rib, made a woman, uh, and Adam called her Isha. And Adam's name was Ish, uh, the, the word for man. Well, the word for man is Adam, but uh, Adam called himself Ish and called her Isha, meaning that they would be united. And, and they clung to one another. That's uh, actually Jesus quotes that passage, that very word. They clung to one another uh, in, in the Gospels. And so there's a clinging, like in marriage, there's a clinging of the believer to God. Uh, and, you know, it makes me think even in the animal kingdom where, uh, or even in the human kingdom, where our little, little children cling to us. Uh, and, and in fact, amongst humans, if, if the baby isn't given to the mother, like very quickly so that they can uh, bond. Uh, it, it's been proven to have an effect, of a positive effect. So clinging to God in terms of this phrase to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, but first, we're going to start with a man from the past. And this is, well, this is a painting. And the poor guy, we don't know how he died, but uh, it's very possible or likely 
that Ignatius got thrown to the lions. Uh, Ignatius was the bishop of Antioch, and in 107 A.D., uh, when he was about seven, actually older than 70, uh, the old bishop was condemned to death by imperial authorities. Uh, the persecution of Christians at the time was not exactly universal, but there were several factions in Antioch that Ignatius stood against. There was a lot of heretical doctrine. Uh, it was a big uh, uh, cosmopolitan place, and there were a lot of heretical doctrines that Ignatius stood against as the bishop. And it's like we don't know who ratted on him, but somebody did to the authorities that Ignatius was resisting Rome or resisting bowing to the emperor or worshiping the emperor. He was accused and arrested and shipped off to Rome. On the way to Rome, which would have taken from Antioch, this is Antioch in in Syria, so it's a long trip, Uh, (coughs) uh, sorry, Ignatius, wrote seven letters, which are among the most valuable doctrines, uh, documents for our knowledge of early Christianity. Somehow, Ignatius had heard that Christians in Rome were considering the possibility of freeing him from death. He asked them not to. As he faces the ultimate sacrifice, Ignatius believes that he begins his life as a disciple at this time. And so all he asks of the Christians in Rome to do is to pray for him, not that he be freed, but that, they, that, but that he might have the strength to face every trial. He says, quote, so that I may not only be called a Christian, but also behave as such. He wrote, my love is crucified. He wrote, I no longer savor corruptible food but wish to taste the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, and his blood I wish to drink, which is an immortal drink. When I suffer, I shall be free in Jesus Christ, and with him shall rise again in freedom. I am God's wheat to be ground by the teeth of beasts, so that I may be offered as a pure, uh, uh, as, as pure bread of Christ. He also wrote that his greatest desire in events that these events that ended his life would that he would be a great witness for Jesus Christ. Uh, so I start with this because this is a man who clung to God. And not everybody at the time, and, and certainly not all Christians, have ended up being eaten by lions or, or martyred. But we see this when you look at it in the scripture, we look at the biblical heroes. For almost all of them, things don't end well. Uh, Paul is executed. John is uh, imprisoned on the island of Patmos. All the other disciples were martyred. Uh, The Old Testament saints, the prophets, none of them are treated well. And in fact, uh, Jeremiah, who we'll see today, ended up in prison and was threatened to have his life taken a, a, a number of times. And All of them have a hard go of it. The heroes of the Bible mostly suffer and die. And we'll see today that those who cling to God will suffer, but they suffer in a different way than those who don't cling to God. Those who don't cling to God and and live their lives independent of God, and I do mean Christians as well, that they, um, you know, it it does... it doesn't go well for them eventually. And for a little while, it may seem that it does. Uh, the, the wicked, we read of this in the scripture, that the wicked seem to prosper at times. They seem to be getting away with things. They seem to be uh, you know, having more material abundance than, than the Christian who follows Christ. That may or may not be true, but it, does it seem to us or does it appear to us that those are getting away with things that they're living lives that are not in accordance with their creator and, in fact, that they don't. So, uh, <clears throat> when affliction arises, these two types of affliction I pull from the parable of the sower. When affliction arises because of the word, what do you fill your heart with? And each of us, affliction comes. It's just it's such a common word. Affliction comes not just to the believer, but to the uh, to the unbeliever, 
to the carnal believer, to the non-carnal believer. Affliction arises because of the word. Then what is your response? That's why I put response time here is because it's vital that our response to these things is as immediate as possible in a good way. That we don't delay, but that it's as soon as the affliction comes upon us that we respond in kind with the truth, with what God would have us do. And so in the parable of the sower, the second group, the first group will ignore. The first group is the seed that falls along the side of the road and the birds come and eat them up. Uh, that's probably reference to the unbeliever. But this, the second one is the one that receives the word on the rocky soil. And there's no depths of soil. And so immediately the, the root, the, the plant springs up, which is like a believer, or I'll say a believer, who receives the word of God with joy, but then affliction comes. And what's their response to it? Well, whenever we respond to anything, we fill our hearts with something. Your heart is a receptacle. Uh, we fill our hearts with our thoughts, with outside thoughts, with old thoughts, with memories, with preconceived notions, or with things from the Word of God or from God. So when we're responding to affliction, what do we fill our heart with? In the, uh, the third instance of the parable of the sower, the seed falls on the soil that has thorns and thistles. And the thorns and thistles, uh, Jesus uses representation of worries and the longing for things, whether it be money or other things. And so all of us are impressed with these worries. When I mean impressed, I mean they come upon us. Uh, we we uh, get news. Uh, we get uh, uh, even just thoughts, just thoughts that worry us, things in our lives, circumstances that worry us. How do we respond to that? With what thoughts? With what uh, ideas? With what ideology? What do we fill our hearts with <clears throat> when it comes to longing for money and things? All of us are tempted by this. We have a longing. We have desires. And as fallen creatures, we're often feeling lacking. And so we get this, the temptation for money and things. And the, and the response, what do we fill our hearts with? So with Jeremiah, we have a waistband. So look at Jeremiah 13, verse 1. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and buy yourself a linen waistband and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. Now the, the, the part of the water we'll see, but it's it, the part of not of keeping it dry is in association with the whole rest of the process that's going to happen here. So notice it's a waistband. Uh, what are waistbands for? Uh, actually, uh, I thought about uh, titling this message, uh, <clears throat> uh, Don't Let Your Spiritual Pants Fall Down. The, uh, the waistband is for keeping your pants up, but in the ancient East, they're generally not wearing garments like we are. In the ancient East, the waistband or girdle was an adornment. It could be an adornment around your cloak. Or also, uh, if you're, most cloaks were loose-fitting, and so to uh, keep it from flopping around while you were working or running or something like that, you would, that's where you get, it's called a girdle, and you gird up your loins. That comes from the word girdle. So uh, a waistband is to keep a loose-fitting garment in order. Uh, so uh, we know that John the Baptist wore one. His was leather. This one is linen uh, in Jeremiah. And so this relates us to the priests, uh, actually, because the priests wore a linen waistband. And in the opening of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is called a priest. So Jeremiah the prophet is a priest, and he is commissioned by God to go and buy a linen waistband and put it around his waist. So as it continues in verse 2, so I bought the waistband in accordance with the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. That's a pretty simple command to follow. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, Take the waistband that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise and go to the Euphrates and hide it in there in the crevice of the rock. Now, this seems strange, except that when we realize, remember that the brunt, actually the whole prophecy and work of Jeremiah in this book is the warning 
to the southern kingdom Judah that the Babylonians are coming to take them. And so the northern kingdom's already gone. They were conquered by the Assyrians and deported. They didn't come back. I mean, they didn't get lost. They, some people call it the lost ten tribes of Israel. That's ridiculous. We know where they went. It's just that they didn't come back. Uh, many of them didn't. Most of them didn't. Uh, but when it came to the southern kingdom, who had already seen this, uh, and already had seen the Assyrians come to Jerusalem after they conquered the north, surround the city, brag that they were going to destroy everything, and then God killed them all, and Sennacherib had to run back home with the, the king of Assyria, went back home and died uh, by the hand of his sons, just like it was prophesied. And Israel saw all of this. That was in the time of Hezekiah the king. And that was about 100 years ago. So, you know, a whole generation has gone by. Here comes Jeremiah telling them that the Babylonians are coming and they're going to destroy you. And they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. So uh, God told Jeremiah to do multiple things. But this one, you'll see when we read just through it a few lines, you'll see how it relates to our subject. Where is the Euphrates? This is a long trip for Jeremiah. Some think that he didn't actually make the physical trip because it's so far. But anyway, I think he did. He, took, he takes this linen waistband to the Euphrates, which is where Babylon is. And he hides it. Now, the waistband represents uh, Israel and Judah. And the waistband is going to be buried near Babylon. And this all represents the fact that the Jews are going to be in captivity in Babylon. Uh, <clears throat> now, the waistband is to cling to the waist. And it represents Israel who did not cling to the Lord. And Jeremiah will explain. So in verse 5, I, I, So I went and hid it in the, by the Euphrates as the Lord had commanded me. And it came about after many days that the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the waistband which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the waistband from the place where, it was hit, where I had hidden it, and lo, the waistband was ruined. It was totally worthless. The many days represent Judah's captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Uh, Judah would be captive in Babylon for 70 years, but then they would be allowed to be returned. But notice that the waistband is ruined and it's totally worthless. <clears throat> Israel would be destroyed. The temple, Solomon's amazing temple would be destroyed. The walls would be torn down. Uh, the city of Jerusalem would be completely run over. Uh, salted, burned with salt. I mean, it would be absolutely annihilated. No one in Israel believed that this would happen, or in Judah. Right? Judah is the name of the southern kingdom. No one believed this, and yet it happens. Now, the, the, uh, the lesson for us here, which, you know, as the New Testament says, these things were written for our benefit. First and foremost, is this captivity of Israel permanent? And actually, it's not. Uh, and that shows us that grace is always there. If we, if any of us who have been listening lately or listen in the future or whatever, if we have not been clinging to the Lord, if we have not been living a life filled with the Spirit, there's time. You know, if we're alive, there's time. God does not abandon us. Grace is always there. When they're in captivity... God is going to give them prophets like Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel is going to be a prophet to God to Israel, prophet of God to Israel in Babylon. Uh, God promised them to return after 70 years. God gave them Cyrus the Great, who would conquer, uh, king of Persia, would conquer Babylon and allow the Jews to go home and to rebuild their city and their temple. He gave them men like Zerubbabel, who would build the temple, Nehemiah, the prophet, Ezra, the scribe. When, uh, when they returned, these men would help reestablish Judah and bring back their spiritual life and their unity. So if we realize that we have been filling our lives and our time 
with something other than God, with something other than His Word, with something other than the Trinity, then we still have time to come home. Now, the waistband is going to be buried by the Euphrates near Babylon. And after many days, Jeremiah is going to return and get it, see it ruined. And yet, the Israelites are going to have the opportunity to return home. Now, I want to connect some dots here. In our main passage in Ephesians 5, Paul writes, Don't be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. We noted that the word dissipation means wasting the good things of God. Uh, That word is the word for prodigal. Uh, The prodigal son is the dissipation son. The Greek word is asetia, and it refers to the fact that the prodigal son left and wasted things. The prodigal son went, uh, left his home with his father's things. He uh, squandered them. However, and it's the best part of the story, is that the prodigal son was able to return home. And when he did return home, it's not actually that his father cl- that he clung to his father, but his father clung to him. In the same way, Judah was removed from her home. In the pr- prodigal son, he chose to leave. In this case, Judah chose not to cling to the Lord. The prodigal son chose not to cling to his father. He left his father. Judah was removed from her home and was allowed to return and rebuild. Judah had not clung to God, neither had the prodigal son clung to his father, but they both got to return home. And if we're not serious about our Christian lives, if we're not serious about our study of the Word of God, if we're not serious on a day-in, day-out basis to live the life that God has set before us, if you're alive, you can always come home. But there comes a time where time runs out. And as we also know, the longer we stay away, the longer we don't concentrate, the longer we don't devote, the longer we don't obey, the harder and harder it is to change that pattern of behavior. So now, uh, <clears throat> Jeremiah is going to describe the poison that is in the hearts of the people of Judah and the results of any heart that does not cling to God. For the great uh, age of the church, this is don't waste the good things of God. Right? And, and this is what Israel had done and is, and ha- is doing in this passage and had done. Do not waste the good things of God by filling yourself with something else but be filled with the Spirit. Look at Jeremiah 13.8. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, Just so I will destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. Now when he says just so, he's referring to the waistband. The waistband again was buried by the Euphrates, and Jeremiah went back out there to get it, and when he pulled it out from where he had buried it, it was disintegrated and destroyed. Thus says the Lord, verse 9, Just so I will destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who walk in the stubbornness of their hearts and have gone after other gods to serve them and to bow down to them. Let them be just like this waistband, which is totally worthless. For as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for renown, to praise, for praise, sorry, for glory. But notice, they did not listen. They weren't hearing. Uh, <clears throat> now, the same thing can happen to any, any believer in this age. And the same result. And when I mean same results, I don't mean you're going to be carried off to Babylon. But the same result of a what? Notice the words... The waistband is worthless. Be drunk with wine, that is dissipation. It's similar. Uh, Pride, stubbornness, wickedness, that's how they're described. And and people who have this in them waste things. They waste their time. They waste their relationship with God. The Word of God is spoken. It's tossed to the side. It's wasted. 
So, notice God says, therefore you are to speak this word to them. Now, these, you know, these are written purposely with these words. Um, and meaning that, it's supposed to jump off the page to us that they will they refuse to listen, he says in verse 10, and then he tells Jeremiah, speak to them this word. Are they going to listen to him? No. But God is going to keep speaking. And that's another point here, that God is going to keep speaking, speaking, speaking. And, and if people aren't listening, they're not listening. Uh, there's, God is going to keep speaking anyway. Therefore, you are to speak this word to them. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Every jug is to be filled with wine. And when they say to you, do we not very well know that every jug is to be filled with wine? Then say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm about to fill all the inhabitants of this land, the kings that sit for David on this throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Israel with drunkenness. Now, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the same word that Paul uses in our passage in Ephesians 5. Pleroo. It means to be filled. And, and God here is saying, I'm going to fill them with drunkenness. And so we're, we'll tackle that just in a second. And then he says in verse 14, And I will dash them against each other, both the fathers and the sons together, declares the Lord. I will not show pity, nor be sorry, nor have compassion, that I should not destroy them. And so God says to Jeremiah, speak this word to them. We have the picture here of a bunch of jugs, right? That do not. He says every jug is to be filled with wine. It may very well be that Jeremiah walked into and joined a festive gathering, that there was some kind of gathering. Maybe it was the upper-ups in Israel, the leaders, the nobility, had gathered together. And, of course, on the table there would be a row of jugs that were wine jars. So as Jeremiah walks into this festive gathering, uh, as he joins it, he says to them, every jug is to be filled with wine. And the revelers who don't care for God or his word respond, well, of course, Jeremiah, we know that. Uh, Don't we know that every jug is to be filled with wine? And of course, that is what they're going to respond and what God is doing here is causing them to confess something. Right? Jeremiah walks in and really, ironically, sarcastically says, these jugs need to be filled with wine, when he knows very well that that's pretty much their top priority at the festival is to make sure that they are. Right? They're not there to talk about God or God's things as the nation of Israel. And at the time, the nation is, is under dire conditions. There's a lot of things to discuss uh, with economic problems, problems in the society, problems with uh, the, their their lack of worshiping God, and they're not there to discuss those things. They're there to revel with one another, to enjoy a party, and to drink. And <clears throat> so, um, in response to which Jeremiah delivers these oracles. They say, yeah, of course we know everything is to be, these jugs are to be filled with wine. And the responses which Jeremiah delivers uh, is dire. He says pretty much that the drunkenness that you want is not the drunkenness that you're going to get. And would they repent? Would they listen? Well, we just have to know the history, and we know that they don't. They will be destroyed. So we have embarked on a study of uh, God the Holy Spirit on the filling of the Spirit, The contrast that Paul uses to the filling of the Spirit is the wastefulness of drunkenness. And it's similar here. God has uh, stated that these people, God has revealed to them uh, the reality of the fact that they have wasted their God's voice, they have wasted God's word, they have wasted God's blessings, and they have filled themselves with something else. Now, we would not, conclude that the result here, or what God is actually going to do, is to perform some act in which everybody's going to automatically be drunk. Uh, That is not the only problem in Israel. Certainly there's got to be a problem of drunkenness in in Judah, I should say, at the time, because they're immoral people. 
But that's not the only uh, problem by far. What God means here when he says be filled or by filled with drunkenness is that they're going to drink the cup of his wrath and the vintage is going to be the Babylonians. The symbolism is the drink given to a condemned man. Uh, Another example of this is in in Nahum chapter 3 where God says, you too will become drunk, you will be hidden, you too will search for a refuge from the enemy. Uh, This he actually says to Thebes, uh, which is uh, a a kingdom just south of uh, Egypt to the north, it's halfway down the Nile, uh, and Thebes would be destroyed by the Assyrians right about this time that Jeremiah is prophesying. So this helps us to see this phrase, you will become drunk, actually is the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is what everybody is going to drink. Not everybody's going to end up drunk when the Babylonian comes and get, come and get them. I'm sure there'll be some. But not everybody's going to be drunk. This helps us to see that in Ephesians 5, that Paul is not just only talking about drunkenness from wine literally. That's included, obviously. It is a waste of time. But... Uh, Paul uses it as uh, a common understanding of that which is a waste of time for everything else that's a waste of time. When God says, I'm going to fill you with drunkenness, he really means I'm going to fill you with my wrath. And so when we turn to our passage in Ephesians 5, we see, well, you know, what is this drunkenness that is a waste of time? And it is everything that is a waste of time, of which drunkenness represents them. What we see is wrong with these people that God has condemned here in Judah. Uh, The list goes, they have great pride, they are wicked, they refuse to listen to God's words, and their hearts are stubborn. stubborn. They should have been been like the good waistband that clung to the Lord, but their decisions rotted the fabric of their very souls. Uh, They refuse to cling to God, they refuse to cling to his word. Uh, None of us can say, well, you know what, I'm filled with the Spirit. And we don't cling to God's Word. Uh, We don't cling to His will. Uh, We don't devote ourselves to His will. And just as Israel does here, a believer, a Christian, can actually live in the world, amongst the world, be completely influenced by the world and influenced by sin. Uh, And so what they have here in Israel, as an example to us, is that they cling to the things of their flesh. What I mean by that is the sin nature. And what does the flesh cling to? As uh, Paul writes in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, that the deeds of the flesh are evident. And he includes things like sexual deviance or sexual immorality, idol worship, conflict, aggressive conflict amongst people, and immorality in that list. Uh, is the deeds of the flesh. And that's all the flesh can really cling to. And this was indeed the state of Judah. Now note the contrast with, and it's very simple, uh, you know, is is clinging to God and following his commands something that is reserved for some kind of genius? That's actually not true because we see in this case, in Jeremiah, in the case of Jeremiah, the response of the prophet. In verses 1 and 2, God says, go and buy. And Jeremiah right. so I bought it. Go by the waistband. I did. He said, God said, put it on. And Jeremiah did. He put it on. He said, go and hide it. So I went and hid it. Verses 4 and 5. Now go and get it. So I went and got it. In verses 6 and 7. It's very simple. And the commands of God are not complex. It's a matter of us doing them. So as I said at the front uh, of the message that if you want to know how to prosper in happiness, then I can tell you, because the Bible tells you, even if suffering comes upon you, and the worst kind of suffering, I can tell you, because the Bible tells you, If you want things like peace and happiness and hope and faith and love, God gives them in abundance. But you have to go to the source. And the source is him. He is the source. The source is his word. 
Every part of His Word is the source. Even things in the, in, uh, the prophet Jeremiah. So God says to Judah uh, to listen, and they refuse. But not only are we to listen, but we are to be wise in the truth. And so this is what God said to Israel. This is at their start now in Exodus 19. This is at Sinai. Just before he gives them the Ten Commandments in the beginning of the Mosaic Law, this is before the golden calf. This is just as they get to Sinai. <coughs> God says to them, now then, Exodus 19, 5 and 6, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Remember, the, the waistband is made of linen, which is the waistband of the priests. And all of it represents the same, uh, or the same type of thing. And, and notice what they are to do. Obey my voice and keep my covenant. Right? It's not rocket science. It's a matter of faith. And this is the key to the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's not some uh, a complex procedure. It's not a procedure at all. It's actually just your obedience. If you obey, he will fill you to do. If you are humble and yield to God's will, he will fill you to do. He'll give you energy. He'll give you wisdom in the task of doing what God has called you to do. And then you will be what? God says here, and how tender and uh, personal that you shall be my own possession among all the people. Now, certainly of Israel as his client nation, but us as his children here on earth, uh, who are who call him father, and he shall be a kingdom of priests to me and a holy nation, and that's exactly what we are in the church. First uh, uh, Peter chapter two, Second Peter chapter two, that we're a kingdom of priests and and a holy nation, and that's what we are in the body of Christ. And so we are each of us priests, and as priests we are to represent ourselves to God we need to worship God to do that we need to have the wisdom of God to do that and to do that is to not be what Judah is here what does the waistband tell us uh, the waistband is clinging to God so God causes them to confess their life of drunkenness and they do he kind of traps them. He said, you know, these jugs of wine should be full. They're like, no, duh. And they kind of confess the fact that that's what they're into. Um, but they're not filled with knowledge, with obedience. They're not filled with understanding. They're not filled with humility. And hence, they're not filled. Well, in our case, if you're a believer, is not filled with humility. You're not filled with obedience. You're not filled with truth. I don't mean you know all truth. I mean, you have something that the Holy Spirit can work with, then you're not going to be filled with the Spirit. If you're, if you, Let's say if you're saying, I'm not filled with obedience, I'm disobeying, then you're in sin. You're grieving the Spirit. You're not filled with the Spirit. It's a state of faith for the believer. Uh, so, as we see in the passage that we looked at today, God initiates the law of reap what you sow. And so, uh, and so uh, what do we fill our hearts with? The consequences to Judah are brought on them by God. The consequences to the north in Israel are brought on them by God. And we, say, we sometimes think reap what we sow principle means that God's not involved. It's just the natural, natural life uh, repercussions to bad choices. But it's God who has set up those repercussions. It's God who set up unhealthy things. God has made our bodies and our minds to respond. Uh, I read a great article today about um, just two-parent households, you know, which we all know is 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 the best thing for a child. But it, it was just it was an excellent article put out by someone who who just you know was showing that how in the world this is so vehemently fought against in certain places, not by the majority of people. Uh, but anyway, my point is, is, you know, why is it that children do better in two-parent households and single-parent households? Because God has designed us. 
God designed marriage. That's not something we came up with. God designed the human body. God designed, quote-unquote, health, mental and physical. Uh, God designed wisdom and truth. And the only way you're going to get them is at God's way. The only place you're going to get them is the source of God. So when, it, when we reap what we sow, this is exactly what God does. He has set up the laws so that the seed that falls beside the road is eaten by birds. It doesn't grow. The seed that falls in the, narrow, uh, the, the soil that has no depth grows quickly and then dies quickly. The seed that is sown amongst thorns and thistles uh, chokes itself out. It doesn't have the nutrients. It can't, it can't survive. Only seed on good soil survives. Well, who made that law? Right? That's God's law. And Jesus completely ties type of soil to type of person. And what type of people are we? So what do we fill our time with? That's what we're sowing. Right? What, what are we filling our time with? What are we filling our minds with? And again, in the parable of the sower, why didn't the plants grow? I cannot emphasize enough that good choices have to be made every day. Days spent without God's thoughts, without God's virtues, without God's love, without love for his word. They sack our momentum. And when you have one bad day, that leads easily to two or more. Your momentum quits, and it's hard to get it back. It's like restarting a cold engine. It's <clears throat> If you sap your momentum, it's hard to get it back. If we have momentum for a day or two, and then no momentum at all for more days, we never get anywhere. We stay stuck. And in the case of drunkenness, continued drunkenness or any addiction gets worse. It becomes more and more difficult to overcome the longer you remain in it. And that's true of all vices and sins. So when Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, Paul writes, for that is throwing away everything that's good, but be filled with the Spirit. This means to have a life filled with the Holy Spirit and not any other earthly thing that will cause us to neglect the good things of God. And in essence, throw them away with both hands, meaning the good things of God. <clears throat> so the problem with the human race, did I not have this up here? No, I forgot to put them in. Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Right? That's Solomon's awesome view of humanity in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's marvelous. The book of Ecclesiastes shows us the actual reality of things. And so again, Ecclesiastes 9.3. This is the problem with the human race. It was a problem with Judah, problem with Israel, and problem with everybody. It can only be corrected at the source. The source who is God. Uh, God's word, God's spirit. So furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Psalm 89.3, God says, Fill their faces with dishonor, that they may seek your name, O Lord. But the psalmist says, Fill their faces with dishonor, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Uh, and in Psalm 83, it speaks of the fact that God brings discipline and pain and reap what you sow, so that when our faces are filled with dishonor, that we seek his name, hopefully. So again, in the parable of the sower, we'll just read it. Uh, take uh, Mark's version. You can turn there if you want. Mark 4.14. Uh, the sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. This is where Jesus interprets it. These are the ones uh, are beside who are beside the road where the word is sown, and when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. And that's probably a reference to an unbeliever. Uh, Jesus doesn't make... I, I've heard people debate this. I've, I've read of people debating this. 
uh, in these four instances, who's a believer and who's an unbeliever, please note that Jesus doesn't uh, make issue of that at all. He doesn't approach the subject at all. So it's not important that we know that. What's important is that we're the last one. That's what's important. Every parable has one main theme. And as Jesus said, this is the chief of parables. He said, if you understand this one, you understand the rest of them. And so from this parable, if you get the one main theme, that you have to be the one who is in the last category, the good soil. And the soil is the person. It's the type of person. Okay, so these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. So, this is what made me think of a martyr. And, and I went and found Ignatius. I could have picked a few, but Ignatius is the first famous one of the early church fathers. Affliction and persecution arose in the early church because of the word. And sure, there were plenty who fell away. The same thing has happened in modern times. Uh, especially think of uh, nations like Iran and China, Russia, where Christianity has been illegal forever. For, well, for a long time. And there are still churches, uh, hidden underground churches in those places where, you know, it costs you something to be a Christian in those places. And so, and it, like anything, in the service of God, you know, it should cost you something. It either costs your time or your energy, sometimes your money, your work, your concentration, your thoughts. It costs you something. And... So what is it when you're, and I'll go back to this original slide here. Come on, there we go. When you respond to affliction or persecution because of the word, you know, what is your response? But your response is what you fill your heart with. I'm, just, I'm playing on the word filling. Your response is what you fill your heart with. If as soon as affliction comes, you fill your heart with fear, you're the one who feared. You're tempted to, yeah, but you're the one who puts the thoughts in your head or lets the thoughts get in. You're in control of that. Now, that's why I said, I think it was yesterday, that we have to keep learning the Word of God because God has made it so that we have to make choices to learn. We don't just read the Word of God once and then know everything about it. I mean, that would be... You think, all right, I have the Holy Spirit to lead me into all truth is what the promise is. I should be able to just read these passages, get through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and when I'm done, I should know it all. Supernatural. But God has made it so that our finite mind of learning is what limits us. He has made it so that we have to keep coming back. He has made it so that even though limited in our thinking, we still have to make choices. One of the things I loved about the, um, the guy who has to make the, the, the tabernacle, we might return to him. He's filled with the spirit, Bazalel, and he's got to create the artistry of the tabernacle. And so God gives him instructions. You know, they get the whole instructions from Exodus 25 through 30-something. Or all these instructions about the tabernacle. They say, great, you know, here are the blueprints. But actually, they're not blueprints. So, for instance, he's told to make two cherubim on the mercy seat that's going on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, and their wings are supposed to stretch over the mercy seat. They're both supposed to be looking at the mercy seat. And they're made of pure gold, all of one piece. All right, so here you go, Basilel, make that. And you know what God doesn't tell him? How long are the wings supposed to be? What angle are they supposed to be at? If you go look at, like in Google Images, at like the Ark of the Covenant, sometimes you see the wings are like this, sometimes they're out like this, sometimes they're out like this, because nobody knows. You see, Basilel was able 
to fill in the details that weren't told to him. By the filling of the Spirit, he was able to confidently say, yeah, I'm going to make the wings like this, I'm going to make them this long, whether they touched each other or whatever. He is the one, he was given the artistry. He was given the command on what to make and what it was to look like, but he wasn't told every single millimeter of angles and lengths and stuff like that. And this shows us that we, when it, and we're finite-minded, we have to make good decisions and we don't always know what the decision is. Right? We're given instruction in the Word of God, but we're not told every detail. And because we're not told every detail, we're like, well, what do I do now? Or what do I say now? Should I go with them? Should I not? Should I be with her or him right now? Or should I not? Should I say something or should I be silent? Should I drink that or shouldn't I? Should I eat that or shouldn't I? Should I go there or shouldn't I? Should I study now? Should I read now? For how long? And we're given the choice to do this. And how often do we get it right? It depends. Right? It depends on the person. But we don't get them all right. Just like we don't always, we don't fully understand everything we read the first, second, third, tenth time. We have to keep coming back to it. We have to keep making decisions. But the decisions are on us. And we're helped with these decisions in a supernatural way. But again, returning to the parable of the sower. When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, well, here we go, what do I do? This person is trying to afflict me. (laughs) Yesterday, driving home from here, just getting out of town was just so arduous. Everybody was going so slow. And there was construction everywhere. And like, ah, come on. You know, it was like driving in mud. And this person is in front of me to pull out into the main traffic. You know, we're trying to take a right onto the main traffic to get on on the ramp. And this person is just, there's so many opportunities for them to go. Does this drive you nuts? It drives me nuts. I'm second in line. This person is in front of me. And I can see the line of cars coming. And you've got to be a little aggressive. Get in there. No, won't. You have plenty of opportunities. Nope. Nope. Waiting until like no cars are coming for like a mile. Then they're going to go. And I'm, I've been sitting there for five minutes. So as soon as this person went, I gunned it and went. I had a window and I took it. And the jerk who was next <laughs> came barrel. You could tell he accelerated just to come and right up on my bumper, got on his horn and his big, huge diesel truck just to let me know that I cut him off. And I'm like, look. This is what I'm saying in my mind. We're all trying to get out of town, right? So if you see me coming, let's all you know, merge with love. Merge with love. That should be a sign out there, all over the place. So point of my story, when he finally passes me, he flips me the bird with his big fat finger. <laughs> he flipped me off while he drove by me in his big diesel truck. And his big middle finger. And I'm like, so what was my response? Pure anger. Pure anger. You know, I, I, you know if I had a firearm in the car, I might have thought of grabbing it. But I, I wouldn't have done it. I, w- I wouldn't have done it, but I would have thought about it. <sighs> See that? You like the story? It's a good story. Affliction and persecution arises because of the word. What is your response going to be to that person? Will you fill your heart with anger? Is that what our Lord did? You know, when they're persecuting Ignatius, is he going to fill his heart with anger? Or is he going to do what he wrote, what we read there at the beginning? He said, this is actually the beginning of my Christian life. That I get to give my life for the Lord and be his witness. And so we get a lot of opportunities. What are we going to fill ourselves with? Because the source of joy and peace, even in the midst of great persecution, is not in and of ourselves. What comes from us is anger. What comes from us is 
shaking our fists because we're victims and claiming injustice. But from the source of God comes peace. Because he promises us, look, the jerk in the diesel truck, I'll take care of him. Probably not now because I reacted so poorly. But what is, what is the enemies? Who's got vengeance here? Vengeance is the Lord's. This keeps you at peace. Is anybody going to get away with anything? Nope. Nope. And there's a future world. There's a future kingdom that all of us as believers are going to be a part of. And that future kingdom is going to be absolutely wonderful. So that's the, uh, the second group. No firm root. And affliction and persecution arises because of the word. He says they immediately fall away. And then others are the ones in whom the seed was sown among the thorns. And these are the ones who heard the word. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. All right? When it doesn't it come upon it comes upon you times when you're not even thinking. You're not prepared for it. Some thought, some memory, some circumstance that's very real comes upon you and you're full of worry. You're tempted with worry, with fear. Worry and fear go hand in hand. And then the desire for riches. Oh, maybe there's a problem. You get a car problem or a big financial burden suddenly comes upon you. A medical bill, something like that. And you say, wow, I wish if I only had more money. If I could only just cover all of this and pay for everything. And it's deceitful because God is the one who says, I'm going to take care of you. Look at the birds and the lilies and the grass, right? I take care of them. You're more important than them. I'll take care of you. Don't worry. Don't be anxious, he said, and desire for other things. So, in re- and truly, as I say here, is, is really what we're filling ourselves with. And if we fill ourselves with God's thoughts, God's ways, God's word, we're really filling ourselves with God's spirit. You don't read here some procedure. I, I'm, I'm going to share with that with you maybe tomorrow if it rolls on into Sunday. But I'm going to share with you all the theologians that I have that tell you this is how you get filled with the spirit. And they all kind of overlap each other, but none of them, no two of them are the same. Some of them are close, but... There's various opinions because Paul doesn't go into that. He says, be filled with the Spirit. Then he moves on to the results of the filling of the Spirit. But what we do find is this word pleroo, filled, throughout the New Testament and in the Old, which we've seen. It's in Hebrew, but it's equivalent in Greek. And we find that we're to fill ourselves with things, and those things are of God. Now, in response to the, you know, like the sin question, if I weren't filling myself with the right thoughts, I'd be filling myself with sinful thoughts. And so it's what I fill myself with. These are my good decisions. And so in the last part, those are the, uh, and those are the ones in whom the seed was sown in the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. 30, 60, and 100 fold. So they accept it. So here comes the worry. I accept the word, the truth. Here comes the desire for riches. I accept the word, the truth. Here come the desire for things. Here comes the uh, longing or worries. The worry is upon me. I don't fill myself with the worry or, or more thoughts that are going to make me even more worried. I fill myself with the word. And when you do that, The Spirit is what? It's His job. To guide you into all truth. He's going to make that, when you you decide to fill yourself with the Word, He's going to make that Word come alive. So getting back to Jeremiah. The waistband. Right? Why was the waistband rotten? Because the people were proud. They were wicked. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. And they worshipped idols. And that's why they fell apart. We have the same choices. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for guidance and direction through the things that are of your word by means of your spirit.
I thank you that your word is chock full of the truths that uh, all point, uh, many of which point to the same principles so that we never get bored with whether it's an Old Testament prophet or a New Testament writer or a New Testament parable from our Lord. All many uh, spotlights on the same truth that guide us into understanding. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.